You are about to go on a journey through the first few years of the Troubles. A bloody conflict which claimed the lives of over 3,500 people over the course of 30 years. Two sides waged a violent war over the status of Northern Ireland. There were the Loyalists, who believed Northern Ireland should remain a part of the United Kingdom, and there were the Republicans and Nationalists, who wanted to see an end to British rule in Northern Ireland, and hoped to one day see the North and the Republic of Ireland united as one nation-state. However, we aren't concerned with either of these sides today. Instead, we are concerned with the role of an institution that was very much ever-present during this time, the British state. The democratic state promises legality, justice, accountability, limitations to its use of force. So what happens then when a democratic state fails on these promises? What happens when a state not only fails to de-escalate the tensions of a violent and resilient conflict, but exacerbates them? This is what I hope to explore with you today. So, let's start at the moment it began, the deployment of troops. In 1969, violence between nationalist and loyalist groups was escalating rapidly, and the Unionist government in the North was losing control. So, to prevent a further breakdown in order, the British army was deployed. On the 14th of August, Derry, the second largest city in Northern Ireland, was met with a swarm of British soldiers. Army men, wearing full combat gear and face masks, yielding shields and rifles, patrolled the streets of Derry diligently. A sight that was to become all too familiar for those who lived through the Troubles. They worked with a stoic sense of focus, erecting barbed wire fencing across the entrances to certain streets, undeterred by the atmosphere of instability surrounding them. Uncertainty lingered on the minds of some Republicans. The Royal Ulster Constabulary, or RUC, and the Ulster Special Constabulary, or B-Specials, could no longer be trusted as the impartial police force of Northern Ireland. And so for some nationalists, the possibility of seeing British troops standing shoulder to shoulder with the RUC just seemed too likely for them to embrace the British with open arms. Conversely, for many Republicans, the British troops represented a glimmer of hope. They were welcomed as what would hopefully be a long-awaited neutral force to protect them from the brutality of the RUC, B-Specials and Protestant mobs. Irrespective of whether the nationalists of Northern Ireland trusted the British or not, most were in agreement in their willingness to give them a chance. A chance to prove their impartiality. And so for many, this marked the beginning of a possible move in the right direction. However, we ought to ask, was the decision of deployment the right one? I had the pleasure of discussing this question with Professor Neil O'Doherty from the National University of Ireland, Galway. Well, there were two alternatives. From an Irish nationalist perspective, the view was that the Irish government should have gone in instead. 
you know, that Irish troops should have gone in. And in fact, when the British troops arrived in Derry, which is just a few miles from, from the border, there were those who thought the Irish army had arrived. That's how viable an option it seemed to many. But that just doesn't seem realistic. They couldn't take the whole territory. They could have taken the West Bank of Derry and the Catholic areas, but you would then have had an enormous political problem. The Unionist alternative was let the RUC take the gloves off, mobilize the B specials, the 10,000 auxiliary police who were drawn completely from the Protestant community, let them just get in there and smash this and end it. And that was the other option that was presented at the time. But that was also a non-solution. If they had gone in, things would have escalated massively. And then the Irish government might genuinely have felt that it needed to go in if the British troops weren't willing to do so. To simply do nothing would be an unmistakable act of betrayal by the British state to deny its citizens protection in times of unrest. It therefore seems the British government was faced with no other viable political alternatives. A decisive means of intervention seemed to be the only plausible option left. It can be said then that the British government made a fair and rational decision an opinion shared by many at the time in Northern Ireland also. With this being said, as we're about to see in the next moment, it did not take long for this feeling of hope to disintegrate. On Sunday the 30th of January 1972, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association organised a march in protest of the new internment policy which disproportionately affected Catholic communities. Around 10 to 15,000 people gathered on what began as a sunny afternoon in Derry. Even though the 1st Battalion of the Parachute Regiment, or paratroopers, were closely patrolling the march, a relaxed atmosphere could be felt in the air. Many joined the march just to catch up with friends, have a chat. The marchers made their way down towards the Bogside, a Catholic working-class area of Derry, with a sense of calm. However, this was due to change very, very soon. Once the marchers reached the Bogside, a smaller group of youths split off and confronted the troops at one of the barricades. Tensions were slowly rising. They began throwing stones at the troops, who responded with rubber bullets, tear gas, and water cannons. This had become something of almost a daily ritual in Derry, so although the atmosphere of relaxation had been disturbed, nothing quite seemed unusual about this encounter. What did seem unusual, however, was the sudden revving of the motors of armoured personnel carriers. And when these abruptly moved across the barriers towards the crowd, it caused a deep concern and people started to run away. What was unprecedented was that the soldiers rushed out of their personnel carriers, took aim at the crowd, and began to fire. It's as if once they started, they couldn't stop. As unarmed civilians attempted to flee, the paras shot them. As a man tried to tend to the wounded, Waving a white handkerchief desperately in surrender, the paras shot him. 
as a wounded man attempted to escape with all the strength he had left. The paras shot him. Perhaps most disturbingly, as injured victims laid on the ground in defeat, the paras, standing over them, shot them. Thirteen civilians died that day. Another died months later from their injuries. Yet not one of the lives claimed had been armed. There are many important things to consider about the different ideas that were at play. The civil rights campaign, controlled by the official Republican movement, was moving towards a ceasefire. They wanted an end to the violence and saw the civil rights marches as a way to revive peaceful political activism and hopefully try to divert people away from armed conflict. But this was against a backdrop of massive uncontrolled violence, which was manifesting itself in the streets of Derry every single day. Within the British army, however, was a struggle, a strong sense of disagreement as to how to manage this violence. There's clearly in Derry a senior military leadership that does not want to stoke the fires in the city. So in Derry, you have this kind of security force officials more sympathetic to conciliation. And then in Belfast, you have a sense among the commander land forces, the brigade commander in Belfast, Kitson, and the head of the powers, and they're all unified in their sense that Republicans are being allowed to get away with too much in Derry. Essentially what happens is the commander in Derry proposes a very conciliatory approach to the march. And the commander land forces, General Ford, then, without talking to anyone, phones up Kitson and says, can you release the paras for Derry that day? And it's as if the proposal to go soft has just, it's triggered in him this feeling that, well, go soft, go soft, I'll show you what we're going to do. And so he has the powers all ready to go before he's consulted the political leadership, the GOC, General Officer Commanding. And so I see that operation, the idea of sending the powers in, on his part, it's a very deliberate attempt to disrupt what he sees as an over-conciliatory policy in the city. So, the paratroopers' mandate to launch an aggressive operation that day derived not from their direct superior, but from General Ford. And so it came from the very top of the military command structure in Northern Ireland. And this is despite the fact that the British government explicitly endorsed an approach of restraint. This begs the question then, how did a planned operation with clear confrontational intent, which went so directly against formal British government policy in Derry, travel up through the layers of the political and military control in Northern Ireland. What this severely indicates is a sense of neglect on the part of the British state, a clear lack of competence in enforcing their directives amongst military elites. No one planned this massacre known as Bloody Sunday, but evidently many contributed to it. And afterwards, in a form of cognitive dissonance, 
they became firmly committed to justifications for it. For not only did the Paris slaughter innocent lives, they and the British government then denied the victims' families justice. They defended the actions of the paratroopers, holding that the civilians shot first, despite overwhelming disconfirming evidence. Bloody Sunday and the lack of justice that followed confirmed the fears of those who felt anxious upon the British troops' arrival, and it shattered the trust of those who saw them as their protectors. It indicated that what people had been saying about the British were true. They were oppressors, they were imperialist, and they did not care for their lives or their cause. Now, what was common belief to almost all nationalists was the fact that the British were also the enemy. The impact of this shift in mindset was so profound. It sparked a huge upsurge in support for the Irish Republican Army, a clear turning point, indicating that many civilians were now actively supporting an armed campaign of violence. And that year, 1972, saw the highest number of casualties in the 30 years of conflict, with over 10,000 shootings and nearly 2,000 bombings. With this uptake in armed violence came the end of mass peaceful protest, as the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association had in fact also been a victim of the massacre. For former supporters of peaceful combat, Bloody Sunday was a sign of the failure of this strategy. Who knows whether a move towards peaceful political activism would have ever taken over from armed conflict as the preferred means of protest. But what is certain is that the events of Bloody Sunday and the neglect and abandonment of responsibility from the British government eradicated the chances of this ever happening. What can be seen here is a clear failure from the British state, a failure to provide justice and accountability, a failure to impose limitations on its use of force. States frequently misbehave when threatened they rashly choose quick fixes and readily take a path of repression. But history has shown that when a democratic state fails to uphold its commitments, it only fosters an escalation of violence that proves counterproductive. In the case of Bloody Sunday, history certainly repeated itself. And it illuminated, rather disturbingly, the ways in which the British state and military forces to some extent resembled the opponent it reviled so much. Now, we will explore our final moment. On the morning of the 7th of May, 1981, thousands and thousands of Republicans gathered in West Belfast for the funeral of Bobby Sands who had died two days prior after 66 days on hunger strike in Her Majesty's Mays Prison, or what was infamously known as the H-Blocks. It was as though West Belfast had come to a standstill. All that could be heard was the general murmur of the vast crowd paying their respects, a lone bagpipe echoing nationalist songs, and the distant hum of an army helicopter that lingered above a stark reminder of the atmosphere of instability that still penetrated the streets of Northern Ireland at this time. 
An endless sea of mourning civilians stretched four miles, lining the funeral procession from its starting point right up until Sansa's final resting place. There was no greater indication that nationalists were sympathetic to his cause. To them, Sans was a Republican martyr, and so it was only fitting that he received one of the biggest political funerals in Irish Republican history. So, who was Bobby Sands, and why was he on hunger strike? Bobby Sands was a member of the Provisional IRA, who was arrested in 1976 for possession of firearms. He led nine other Republican prisoners, who all eventually starved to death, into a hunger strike, which represented a struggle to regain the political status that they had enjoyed prior to 1976, when the British government decided to end what was known as special category status and implement a policy of criminalisation. With this measure came the removal of certain privileges and the hunger strikers were demanding that they regain these. Perhaps the issue of the status of prisoners seems trivial, particularly against a backdrop of violence that was ever present during the Troubles. Perhaps it could be said that they deserve to have their privileges removed, given their involvement within vicious and terrorist organisations. And so, perhaps, the British government should be praised for their refusal to give in. But the questions we ought to ask are, was the removal of special category status really worth it? Was this truly an effective use of state power? Would this policy promote de-escalation and help put an end to the violence that had already cost countless lives and that continued to spiral rapidly? The British government saw this strategy as a genuine policy of criminalisation, but it in fact resembled something rather different. In 1976, a meeting where prison authorities and Northern Ireland office civil servants discussed the abolition of the uniform. And the report says the civil servants wanted to abolish it and the prison staff wanted no concession of any kind on uniform and it said by agreement the view of the operational side prevailed by which i take it to mean the civil servants didn't agree with that position but they agreed to yield to the views of the prison staff people represented as a deliberate policy of criminalization you know a, a strategy on the part of the british government my view is it was not a strategy, it was a lack of strategy. It was, in fact, the politicians abdicating responsibility. What was depicted as a genuine policy more so resembled a succumbing to the pressure of those who have no legitimate authority on matters of policy making. Again, we see a sense of neglect and a lack of assertion here from the British state. And again, we witness an escalation of violence that so easily could have been avoided. This policy of appeasement offered no progress in making steps towards peace. It rather predictably fueled the further polarisation and alienation of the nationalist community. The announcement of Sand's death prompted several days of rioting in nationalist areas of Northern Ireland. Perhaps the most obvious indication of just how sympathetic the Republican community were to Bobby Sands is the way in which he is the single most common Republican individual featured in mural portraits across Northern Ireland, which became common and poignant expressions of the struggles and beliefs of the people of Northern Ireland. 
It was to be expected that media coverage that surrounded the death of Sands resulted in a new surge of IRA activity and an immediate escalation in the troubles, with paramilitary groups obtaining many more members and increasing its fundraising capability massively thanks to the international attention that the hunger strikers had garnered. What was profound, however, was the political impact. Sand's death resulted in a surge in support for Sinn Féin, the IRA's political wing. Following Sands's own political success after being elected as an anti-H-Block MP while on hunger strike, in the Irish general election held in the same year, two anti-H-Block candidates won seats on an abstentionist basis. What we see here is that the British state had not only failed miserably in containing the violence, they had now given rise to a significant political threat also. Now, I think that if those civil servants had been able to see 15 years into the future, they might have said, you know, this is worth pushing on. It's worth pushing back against the prison governors because we are storing up years of confrontation. It is therefore without a doubt that this is one of the most disastrous moments in British government policymaking during the Troubles. The moment at which they decided to let what was a very harsh operational perspective prevail and shape what should have been a policy decision aimed at averting escalation. It was not for another 17 years that Northern Ireland would see peace. As in 1998, the Republic of Ireland and all major parties of Northern Ireland came to an agreement on how the North should be ruled, culminating in the Good Friday Agreement. It should certainly be said that this may not have been possible if it were not for the British government. The moments we have explored today do not seek to undermine the role of the British government in the peace process, but instead seeks to demonstrate the way in which the British state made things far worse before they made things better. The first few years of the Troubles in Northern Ireland reveal how the British state wrestled carelessly and negligently with the predicament of how to combat a violent and resilient campaign of domestic insurgency. The state took decisive action to intervene but then made no meaningful commitment to de-escalate tensions, resulting in the spiralling of violence and conflict. The real success would have been to de-escalate tensions quickly. An early and bold initiative needed to be championed by the British government. Would this have caused problems? Of course. Such an initiative would have had to confront a powerful unionist majority within the North that would have certainly pushed back against a settlement offer that was transformative enough that it would have headed off a violent Republican campaign. For that reason, some say it may not have been possible. However, maybe it would have been better to have pushed back against an ideologically stubborn government and embrace conciliation than to later be forced to confront years of violence, terrorism and unrest. Even still, the scars of the Troubles are evident in Northern Ireland today. As recent as early April 2021, scenes of violence all too familiar erupted in Belfast. 
and it marked the longest sustained period of violence in Northern Ireland in many, many years. This is a strong indication that tensions have not truly been eradicated in Northern Ireland yet. And perhaps, for some, the fight isn't over until they see a united island of Ireland. <laughs>